I don't think they need much introduction, but I'm going to. So first to speak will be Evan Davis, who is BBC presenter of Newsnight, um, author of Post Truth, Why Have We Reached Peak Bullshit? For once, I'm allowed to swear on this panel. Uh, my colleagues will be glad that I'm allowed to do it. Uh, then we go to Matthew Dancona, who is a columnist for Guardian, Evening Standard, New York Times, as we've already heard, a Science Museum Group trustee and author of his book on post-truth, Post-Truth, The New War on Truth and How to Fight Back. Um, and finally, James Ball, who is a special correspondent for BuzzFeed and author of Post-Truth, How Bullshit Conquered the World. So, your five minutes, Evan, start now. This is a very important evening because this is the first time the three of us whose books have very similar <laughs> titles and um, were published at a very similar time have all been in the same room at the same time. So you do know that there were three different authors uh, of the different books. Uh, thank you, Fiona. Thank you, and uh, thanks for, for having me. Um, first, is post, are we in a particular post-truth era? I'm a bit sceptical that there's some unique kind of era of lying and fake news. I mean, it's always been around, but I would put myself on the slightly sceptical camp there. What I will say, though, is this. I do think politics at the moment has made people... Uh, incredibly tribal, and um, a lot of belief I observe, if only looking at my Facebook timeline, a lot of belief seems to be about which tribe I'm in and what does my team think, rather than what does my judgment make me think. So a really good recent example was the Google memo on um, whether men and women have any biological differences that might account for different rates of uh, selection into different professions. And essentially, I just observed that I knew which position people were going to take on the, the apparent science of that question uh, by just knowing what their politics was rather than by them uh, addressing the science or looking at the evidence or arguing about the, the data. Uh, so I think tribalism and Trump and a sort of sense of discontent do account for why we are in a somewhat different era. But I wouldn't want to exaggerate, you know, that somehow lies have suddenly become... Uh, a currency that is that, that is completely different to every other era. Um, what I think you know you should bear in mind is that whether it's tribalism or whether it's other reasons, human beings do have a capacity to believe bullshit and to swallow it. Whether it's swallowing you know baldness cures and believing that they'll cure you or um, any number of things. People do have a, an ability to swallow it. Here's my challenge to scientists. I don't think scientists are not human beings. Scientists are human, and they have the same capacity to persuade themselves that things are true when they may not be true, to think this fits my worldview, therefore it, uh, you know, I, I, know it's, I know it's the case. Um, and so there's a sort of... The, the problem for science is, one, that scientists do get things wrong, and they are subject to confirmation biases, and there are replication issues when you go to their studies and ask to do them again. These things actually do occur. And the second problem for science, making all of this much more difficult than I think people will appreciate, the second problem for science is that certain things that are sometimes taken as almost as good as fact turn out then not to be correct or turn out to be more complicated than the science thought. Um, I've just read a fantastic book called The Obesity Code, which persuaded me that calories don't make you fat. I don't know whether that is true or not, but it's certainly very powerfully and convincingly argued. Um, 
As an economist, I can tell you I literally believed we would not and could not have a run on a bank in the modern era. I literally said to someone who gave me a proposal for a TV documentary about a run on a bank, no, we can't have runs on banks anymore because we know how to deal with them. Two years later, we had a run on a bank. So sometimes the experts do get things wrong. So this is the problem for science. They do sometimes get things wrong, and they are human, and they, like everybody else, can swallow bullshit. So here is my tactical advice to scientists who think we're stuck in an era where people like Trump don't listen to what we say, we're ignored, people don't take the science seriously. My advice is to apply a bit of psychology, is not to argue your case more strongly, and to sort of shout at people, you're stupid because you don't listen to the scientists. My advice, this is tactical advice, is for science to be more modest about what it knows and what it doesn't know, to express more doubt about its own science, and to be more, to be less dogmatic in some of the conversations. And I think that's a tactical point because I have observed that as a means of persuading people things are not true, shouting at them and telling them there's an idiot is not a way, a way to do it. And so, science has, you know, should focus, should focus not on persuading by being dogmatic, but science should focus on persuading by being open-minded and being kind of just sort of respectful. And sometimes science goes the wrong way. And the poster for this very event, the poster for this very event, what was the phrase um, with the banner being held yeah. up? Um, I can't I remember can't, now. It's something like, the great thing about science is, even if you don't believe it, it, it yeah, yeah, even if you it. don't believe it, it's, it's true. true. <laughs> well, yes, up to a point. The fact, the, re the reality is true, but what scientists sometimes believe isn't true. And so modesty is a good tactical and a good intellectual position to take. Well, that's a very provocative first statement. I'm hoping you're getting ready to uh, tell him he's completely wrong. No, thank you. That's really excellent. Matt, over to you. Uh, well, I'd like to begin in my accustomed fashion by lowering the tone. Um, and um, saying that for me, the, the definitive text on post-truth and science is offered by a, a classic Mitchell and Webb sketch, in which, which is set in an accident in an emergency department in which uh, the victim of a, a road traffic accident is wheeled in with all the, the hoopla of a, of a, of a, of a, of a, uh, a hospital set drama. And um, uh, Mitchell's uh, Webb says, prepare me a solution of Arnica. Get me some wolfsbane, also known as monkshood in here, and a whole tray of flower remedies. And Mitchell wearing a, the, the, the suit of a Harley-Tude expert, looks at the, the patient and says, his chakras are fading, we need some crystals. And Webb says, nurse, fetch me some purple-tinted quartz. Oh, all right, make that aquamarine quartz. And Mitchell says, his horoscope's not too clever either. Sagittarius. Now, it, it's easy to mock pseudoscience, um, and it's good to as well, I think, because satire is a powerful weapon in, in the battle against post-truth. Um, I, I, I guess I, I'm a few degrees um, closer to the uh, belief that there is a, a problem than ever, in the sense that I, I wouldn't dispute for a minute than, that there have always been lies, there has always been mendacity, there has always been falsehood. But I think that the combined effect of the uh, decline of faith in institutions and the kind of rocket booster force of digital technology 
which has encouraged people to cluster in their existing belief structures, if you like, has created, at the very least, a new climate. Um, and it's very important that we not confine that, as I think pundits such as myself are inclined to do, to discussion of Trump and Brexit, because it has many other aspects of which science is very much one of the most important conspiracy theories, also very important. Um, I think that, just to go back a bit, um, because Evan's absolutely right, I mean, this is not something that has emerged overnight. Um, if you're looking at the question of science and post-truth, you have to go back to the 50s and the uh, birth of uh, a really uh, well-funded uh, and systematic misinformation industry, which essentially was uh, based on the proposition it was important for front organizations to be established to systematically spread falsehood acting on behalf mm. of vested interests. And the, 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 the kind of foundation moment was the, the launch of the Tobacco Industry Research Committee <laughs> in 1954. And that was a corporate-sponsored body which was set up in response to the growing public anxiety about link, the link between tobacco and uh, lung diseases. And the subtlety of objective was at the heart of this because what they understood, these um, uh, propagandists, was that the, the, the game was not to win the battle outright because how could you? but to unsettle the, existing, the existence of a scientific consensus. The idea was to sabotage public confidence and to establish a false equivalence between those scientists who de had detected a link between tobacco use and lung cancer and those who challenged it. So th the objective was not academic victory, but the continuance of popular confusion uh, and enough, a kind of a critical mass of doubt to preserve the lucrative status quo for as long as possible. Um, and you see a similar thing in climate change. Um, you know, it is absolutely the case that 97% at least of climate change papers stating a position on global warming agree that it is happening and that humans are causing it. But still, uh, climate change deniers uh, have no difficulty in securing a platform here and there. And actually, when I was editor of The Spectator, I, I ran this gauntlet by uh, running uh, an interview with a, a, a climate change doubter called Ian Plimmer, which caused me all sorts of problems and, uh, you know, I, has given me cause to reflect since. In America, there was the, uh, the total lie of the death panels in Obamacare, which was a major blow to the legislation. And there, there are other examples. Now, of course, doubt is a good thing. And in a sense, one of the definitions of science, as, as Evan was, was saying, is the recognition of ignorance. Um, that's what distinguishes it from faith and, and religion, is that you recognize that you don't know everything and that there is more to be found out. And that's the essence of scientific process and peer review. And it's really important that that, that doubt is conveyed as much as the conviction. Um, I think what you've seen, though, happen in, in recent years is a very, very strong growth in something uh, more insidious, which is just outright scientific denialism, uh, which is a kind of growing conviction that scientists in league with government and big pharma and shady forces are somehow at war with humanity and our best interests. Um, and part of this has been the growing belief that scientific authority is no better than what's available anywhere online. So in the States, you had Jenny, Jenny McCarthy, who's a model and an actress, uh, and a crusader against vaccination, when she was asked about her scientific credentials, uh, famously replied, 
the University of Google is where I got my degree from. And that's a very, uh, it's hilarious, but it's also, it's a very significant moment, I think, in, in this debate. So we've reached a point of astonishing volatility, I think, where evidence-based research is trusted less than anecdotage and institutional authority is often heeded less than conspiracy theories. So what, what do we do about it? Well, I think uh, it, <laughs> it, it, a, a measure of humility is important, but so also is a, 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 a form of charismatic leadership, which is when, you, when you're anywhere like this extraordinary institution, you realize the power of individuals like Brian Cox, Tim Peake, Stephen Hawking. These are people with real reach. And there are others like them who could perform a similar role. And I think that, that has never been more important. We need to have a greater understanding of how scientific findings affect the public. And that means scientists, again, echoing a point that Evan made, being trained in psychology and basic behavioral science, as well as their own scientists, to understand how people interpret scientific information. Uh, it's not enough to make an intellectual case. You, you need to communicate facts in a way that recognizes emotional as well as rational imperatives. And there are lessons to be learned from uh, uh, medicine where, the, for example, there's a, a technique called motivation interviewing, which is a new form of diagnosis taken from addiction therapy, where you, instead of just belaboring the patient with facts about their condition, you, you, you woo them into a situation where they understand its impact upon their lives and behavior. And of course, that means longer with the patient. But there's a lot there that explains how dramatizing truth is a very important part of its communication. And I think that has lessons for, uh, for scientists as well as for newspaper journalists and politicians. So my, my, my concluding thought is that truth always requires an emotional delivery system that is not snarled up by technical language, statistics, and acronyms, and that, in fact, the battle between feeling and reality is often a false dichotomy. So I'll leave it there. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, James? So, um, <coughs> so essentially, I think it's easy for science to almost keep its head down and do its thing, establish the facts, establish the evidence, sort of the basis for truth. You know, we can't really talk about truth or falsehood until we actually know, you know, do cigarettes cause cancer? Does drinking? Uh, can we extend lifespan? Can we treat autism? And I think the temptation is to sit and do that. And I think science had a wake-up call on post-truth and on bullshit a lot earlier than the rest of sort of politics and communications, uh, whether that's sort of from autism, from tobacco, or from climate change. And I think this has been rolling on much longer in this area than in a lot of others. Um, but that doesn't really mean we've got any better at tackling it. Um, some of my colleagues at BuzzFeed at the weekend put out um, a big piece of work on autism. And if you are um, a parent of a child who's just been diagnosed with autism, you will look for information on it. There is no way you will not Google and look around. And however much you dislike mainstream media coverage and all of these, and there is a lot of bad reporting on autism, you will look at parenting threads, at forums, at Facebook groups. One of the first things you will be told is to put your child on a gluten-free diet. Um, you'll have all sorts of suggestions about vaccinations um, and not completing them. 
you'll get a lot of information and you'll get it from people you have every reason to believe and to trust, from other parents, from people who seem incredibly sympathetic, incredibly knowledgeable. And if you look at the most shared stories on autism in the last five years online, um, the top 50 of them, half of them have no scientific basis, uh, just spreading complete misinformation. And this is not sort of on controversial areas of topics. This is on things like the vaccination issue, like whether autism is a reaction to gluten, um, all of these sorts of things. And some of them lead to quite dangerous treatments or quite dangerous and extreme diet plans that could cause quite a lot of harm to a child. And they are reaching people. And just because the science is settled certainly doesn't mean the public debate is. You can sort of sit there and look also at, you know, climate change, of course. You know, again, to talk about that placard, you know, science is true whether you believe it or not. Well, unfortunately, the person who's sitting in the Oval Office uh, either doesn't believe in or is happy to pretend he doesn't believe in man-made climate change. And he's happy to defund it, to remove it as an EPA priority, to essentially stop it being mentioned in research reports. And as long as that's true, the consequences, not only for finding more out about climate change, but for tackling it, are incredibly serious. And so the battle to convince people of science is actually at least as fundamental as the science itself. And it's not one, if we're honest, that's going particularly well at the moment. I think when we start looking at this, it's incredibly easy to sit back and just tut and go, well, how dare people put out these untrue messages? Why, you know, this is bad, tut. And that does absolutely nothing for anyone. And there's generally lots of reasons why people make and spread sort of untruths. And often it comes back to money. There is good money in casting doubt on climate change because it helps a whole bunch of incredibly profitable and influential industries survive for longer and generate profits for longer. Um, and so you will have sophisticated campaigns to spread doubt as these were discussed, all that kind of thing. Similarly, there is good money in making fake news. And when fake news about Donald Trump started doing more traffic than fake news about Britney Spears, then they shifted to that. There is good money in talking nonsense about autism. Um, and so generally, people's motivations for these are for spreading it, for making it. They're generally pretty transparent, but they're not just going to be solved by us standing back and going, this is bad. But on the demand side, it's because often these things tell the better story. And we've got quite bad at telling stories from facts. You know, there is very, very good evidence that arguing from evidence doesn't work. And yet it hasn't stopped anyone doing it. It's one of those joyous paradoxes that proves itself. Um, and we do it. We still try and argue from authority. We try and go, well, look, I've got all these credentials. And I will tell you a story that will contradict your life experience and what, or what you feel your life experience is. And the life experience of other people who you've known longer, who are compassionate, who care. And I'm going to sit and tell you that because of this randomized control trial, which you don't really know what is, in this thing showed this stat that you won't understand, I actually have your best interests at heart. And 
The problem is we want to win the fight on our terms. We want people to go, I love me, I love me some science, I do. Science is great. You know, facts, evidence, yeah, you know, out with the placards. And there are some people who do that, and that's fantastic. But these issues are too important to sit back and try and have the vindication, someone going, you were right, I was wrong. We mess up on climate change and millions of people will die. You know, we mess up on autism and vaccination and we will get outbreaks of preventable disease. And we have to think about how to shift arguments to being about outcomes we want rather than people coming around and hugging us and agreeing with us. And so I would suggest things like, I always think about foreign aid as a policy. Why does no one try and sell it as anything other than compassionate, good world citizen, this kind of argument? If I was selling this to the centre and to the right, I would be saying it boosts our trade ties, it helps us get the first connections, it gets infrastructure which will then create other business for us. I would say it's a national security priority. If we don't fund these areas, other places do. ISIS grows out of chaos, this kind of stuff. I would start seeding think tanks to sort of put that kind of thing out. On energy, green energy, sorry, I'm nearly, nearly done, it's right at the end. On, oh, no, no, it's not a long list. On energy, instead of saying, you know, clean energy saves the planet, push energy independence, push new age of generation, push stability of the grid, all sorts of things that are winnable fights that are also outside of tribal thinking that are outside of Republicans don't like climate change, Democrats do. Try and win old fights in new ways and try and win fights rather than get the vindication of someone going, you were right, you're very clever. And they okay, <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much for all those introductory comments. Um, I, I'm going to move on to science. I'm going to really kind of press you about what um, scientists can do. But first, I want to pin you down a bit more on whether this is new. I think you've all said interesting things about it, but I'm still not sure that I understand. I've read all your books, and a lot of what is in your books is old. Um, even the MMR example, you're talking 25 years ago and climate. So, so, so John Lloyd, I think, in his um, generally very flattering review of, of your books, um, concluded that you've collectively failed to erect post-truth as the defining evil spirit of our age. Now, to be fair, I'm not sure whether you were trying to. I'm not convinced any of you were trying well, to. But University, who gave us the word of the, the year, and, and, and that's when pe so people keep and thinking that it's just. Just let me, let me, as you would say to your guests, Evan. <laughs> just let me finish my question. So it's a multiple choice question, which you don't say to your guests. So just help me with this. So is your contention that post truth is a just a new name for an old thing? be the logical outcome of trends that were already pointing in this direction and spin, communications, postmodernism, Matthew, identity politics, all those things, or C, definitely a new thing or a worse thing. So it's distinct from what went before and it is indeed the defining evil of our age. Okay. So it's not the defining evil of our age, but it is a new and virulent form of an old disease. Right. That's where I am. And I think the reason we're talking about it is Trump. I mean, let's be honest. It's Trump because he says stuff that is blatantly not, not true, and he doesn't seem to care whether it's true or whether it's false. If it's true, then it's nice. I mean, he's not against it being true. He just says it regardless. And that is, in a, an old philosophy paper by a guy called Harris Frankfurt, that is his definition of bullshit. It's, it's just said without regard. 
after the fact. So that, I think, is different. Trump's disregard for expert advice, the, the, the phrase, we've had enough of experts and the way it was interpreted, all of these things, <coughs> I think, do mean we're in a slightly different place. However, we have been there before. You know, every decade has its, has its own version mm -hmm. of deception and mendacity. So we've had new labor spin, which was subtly nuanced compared to the sort of industrial scale of we get at the moment. Uh, we had the Iraq War. Um, we've had, you know, McCarthyism in the 1950s. None of these things are completely sort of fresh out of the womb. However, they are. I think we are in an era where this is a this is pretty interesting. Matthew. Mm -hmm. Well, I certainly don't think, and, 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 and I don't think I've any of us suggested that it was the dominant evil of the age. Um, so I'm not quite sure what fake news John is trying to peddle there. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Listen, um, well, I suppose I have to tend <coughs> to see uh, in the sense that, of course, I accept that mendacity is, um, uh, indeed, every, every, every element by definition um, uh, in a phenomenon like post-truth is going to have antecedents. Um, and, in, and it's part of the pundit's um, self-esteem and animal prop to claim that nothing is new. I mean, that, that's the first thing that when we hear that, you know, the, the, the twin towers have been hit. We say, oh, well, yeah, but that has happened, you know, 1993. Um, it, it's part of our kind of, uh, we establish our credentials by saying it's not new, you know. Um, and, of course, a lot of it isn't new. But I think what, what is new is the way that the, we are consuming the mendacity and the uh, extent to which the ways in which we um, consume information have changed are so transformative um, I mean, Facebook was only invented in 2004. Um, broadband only became widely available in that year. That's, it's nothing in, in, in the terms of human development. And yet in that period, the way that we all consume information has been dramatically changed. I think Evan's right that Trump and, to a lesser extent, speak locally, Brexit, kind of brought to, to the fore a number of things that were bubbling away. And uh, Oxford Dictionary's provided us with the word of the year and lots of book titles. But I think <laughs> that the, the phenomena we're talking about are actually quite multi-layered. And I do think they are serious. And I also think that they require serious solutions because I don't believe in um, the pendulum swinging back. Mm. Ben? Maybe hard going first. So it's a collection Sorry. of, it's a collection of um, old problems <laughs> weaponized by the internet and turned into a very new <coughs> one. And while it might not be the defining evil of our era, it makes tackling all of the actual underlying evils much harder and divides us on them. And it is this connection that we have and this ability to jump into filter bubbles, but this ability to reach huge audiences. If I was going to start trying to convince you that bottled water contains a chemical to keep you docile, um, and I just started doing it in the streets, I might convince five or ten of you and have a few more of you get me sectioned. Um, if I start doing it online and build something that looks credible, I can be reaching audiences of hundreds of thousands, millions, two billion people on Facebook, 300 million on Twitter. It's that ability to weaponize and uh, spread to huge audiences very quickly in very credible ways that has sort of created this perfect storm of a series of, as Evan and Matt have very ably set out, old problems. Okay, thanks for that. So, uh, moving on to science, I think you, you all addressed, actually, and you all um, 
did so really powerfully about what scientists have to do to change to this particular environment, which you're all saying is uniquely challenging. Um, and I think in, in, the, um, in your books, to a lesser or greater extent, you seem to be suggesting that scientists need to kind of get with the program, um, become a bit less technical, um, and start delivering the truth through what you, you described there, Matthew, as an emotional delivery system. Um, I think it's two of you. I don't, I've read lots of book reviews as well, so I'm not sure whether the two of you have quoted it, but um, quote this US climate skeptic very gleefully um, describing why he loves debating with scientists because they're in their own policy wonk world, very arcane, very hard to understand, and very boring with two O's and three R's. Um, and as you've heard, Evan says that the way to counter this post-truth thing is not to assert the primacy of facts in increasingly exasperated tones or to question the intelligence of those seduced by lies. So you, there's a lot of what you've said tonight and, and in the books about how we, those of us, I don't know if we're all scientists in the audience, but people who care about science, how we do this. You don't want us to be too shouty. You want us to be less nerdy. Um, you all seem to agree that facts are, are, are not enough. Um, but isn't there, there's something there that makes me nervous. Um, isn't there a kind of contradiction that if post-truth is a world where facts count out to emotion and personal belief, aren't you all verging on saying that we've got to help scientists to emote more and get beyond the facts and the truths and engage on people's level? And is, is this, a, yeah. Right. Can, so I, can so I start? Okay, start yes. Yeah, yes, yes, we'll go the so other way. I mean, when you are commuting... <coughs> communicating science to a five-year-old, you don't communicate it in the same way as to an 11-year-old or to an 18-year-old. And in the same way, there's a sort of a conversation between, you know, professional scientists in the same field versus how sort of, you know, someone researching aspects of physics might talk to a microbiologist about their fields will be different to how they speak to me, different to how they speak to a trade press. We adapt our message and our complexity of it to suit, and in a lot of cases, you know, the output for science is the media and comes through <coughs> broadsheet and tabloid journalism, and it's very easy to point out bad examples of that. But part of the thing to remember is most of the journalists who will cover this stuff are non-technical and non-experts. It's all very well and good having the science correspondent on your side, but they're only gonna write up so the big stuff. And so one thing I think just in very, very practical terms that isn't done much or that isn't done enough is good communication between whoever writes the press release and whoever does the paper. And I think there's things that scientists do when they're trying to communicate where sometimes they'll let something pretty bad go in the press release because they have faith that a reporter will read the paper too and tone it back or will. A lot of times I see bad reporting, which then gets condemned by the report's author or by other academics in the field. I go and I look at the press release and it was in there. Um, and I think there's a lot of, there's not enough attention paid to that bit between, oh well, the academic paper, the peer-reviewed thing that I put out is fine, but this message isn't, so tut tut journalist. It's like at that point, you know, blame the reporter, blame the press officer, blame whoever. You've kind of let that happen and it's happened and the damage will be done. And so I think sort of taking this broad responsibility for not just the science that's produced, but how the world then understands it. You know, in the spirit of <coughs> better to light a candle than curse the darkness, it's taking responsibility for the whole thing and working out how you can try and get it done better. There's always going to be errors and miscommunications and levels of understanding, but I think that's the bit that you can control and do something about. 
Thank you. Matthew, you, you in particular have, have used this emotional delivery system. And, and so can I pin you down a bit about, yeah, do you no, really sure. want scientists to be emoting Yes, I do. Well, of course. You do? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, because, um, and here I'm, I'm, I'm going to um, shamelessly wear my science museum group hat and just say, you know, when you wander around the galleries and all of this place, you see people really excited, of all ages, really excited by science. <coughs> it's, it's very easy to get terribly pessimistic and think that, that the battle is lost and, you know, that, there's, that basically people are just uh, all gullible pseudoscience. The reasons that James made very clear, there are reasons why pseudoscience has traction, but that doesn't mean that the, the, the battle to, to, uh, to sell legitimate science is lost far from it. When I talk about emoting, I don't mean uh, a kind of people's princess response. I mean, I'm not suggesting that people lay bouquets outside. You know, no, no, sorry, you know, but <laughs> it's just another Thursday as far as I'm concerned. Um, <laughs> so that was very mean. Um, <laughs> Distance yourself. No, no, I, 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 I miss it. Um, I, I, feel that, I feel that we should, um, we, we should, we shouldn't be af afraid of, of uh, framing scientific uh, arguments in ways that are that have personal traction. Um, I, I mean, it, 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 I'm not. I really am not talking about um, musical performances or you know explaining the law of gravity through the medium of dance. I just mean uh, ex explaining things in a way that is that is uh, exciting and comprehensible. And I do think people actually this often happens. To be honest, through people, through personalities, you know. The Tim Peake phenomenon <coughs> is amazing. Um, you know, Brian Cox fills O2. You know, it's not, this, these are not people uh, without an audience. It's not as if we're starting from scratch here. So what is it that these people have that enables them to speak to, to, to in the case of Hawking, you know, to, to hundreds of millions of people? So I, I don't think that it, it's a, this is a process that's kind of germinal. I think it's well underway. The question is, I, I think what James was talking about, how you frame things, is at the very heart of this, actually. You know, that climate change <laughs> has, has been so seen as a tribal argument between, you know, what Evan, you know, Evan's opening remarks about the tribalism that defines us. <coughs> you know, the alt-right have made climate change their big thing because they can't really major on white nationalism, except in Charlottesville. I mean, seriously, you, can't, you cannot make that your front and center argument. So their way in, their door, is climate change. That is the argument. They, you know, the Mellon argument, the people who are climate change scientists are green on the outside and red on the outside, don't believe in climate change, it's communist. Now, this is a fantastically glib and stupid argument, but it, it has been their attack mode. And, of course, it's enraging. So you fight back <coughs> with, you know, huge numbers of facts. But actually... That, that you have to step aside and say the best way to deflect that is to get back to why climate change is important to you and to your family and to what you can do about it and not, be, not get too drawn into that kind of McGregor versus Mayweather approach. However, the, the problem with both of what, what you're both saying is you're in a way falling for a kind of a spin model. We need to spin the science. <coughs> and... It's what George Osborne tried to do in the Brexit referendum when he tried to bring home how terrible it would be to leave the EU for the economy by saying it's £4,328 per no, person. And, and it didn't work <coughs> because in the end it didn't ring true. So I, I, I don't disagree with anything either of you are saying, but I do think you have to be careful 
about advocating spin. I don't think, though, it's necessarily about being emotive. It's about communicating with people, starting with where they are and showing a respect for them. And th the reason I think you need to do this is that in order to... Yeah, okay. Okay, I mean, we're probably on the same. The truth is, <coughs> if people believe my team, you know, I'm, the team is, the team line is, we don't like climate change, doesn't exist, um, or creationism explains the world, um, you're not, you're not going to yield to that. You're not going to accept the argument. But you, you, you have to sort of start with where they are. And I think you have to kind of lower the tone not lower the tone, lower the volume, lower the volume of the argument so that the tribalism diminishes rather than enhancing it. So the, the, the problem I see with so many public debates at the moment is that the sides are shouting ever more loudly at each other to try and persuade the other side of their, uh, th that they're right, that they're strengthening the sense of teams and tribalism and entrenching people's views in doing that. Uh, and so I honestly, I do think you have to, in the end, you know, Take homeopathy, a really interesting example. We know it doesn't work, okay, in the, in, the, in the classic drug way. It might have a placebo effect. It's perfectly possible because we know there is such a thing as the placebo effect. If you're trying to talk to someone who believes in homeopathy, you have the choice of saying you're a dimwit. It doesn't work, even though you say it does. It doesn't work and you're stupid, and we should, you know, we should laugh at you for, for, for believing in it. Um, or you, s you, you have a conversation with them which sort of starts with where they are. You know, really, does it work? Is it just you? Because it, could it be the placebo effect? Um, I mean, I think if you, it's just a matter of that, it's just a, a very slight humility. And I think if you look too dogmatic, A, you're probably not being intellectually honest, and B, you're not, you're not persuading. It's, it's, and, and actually, I think in the Brexit referendum, the science of the economic argument that was made by Osborne was too strongly delivered and was unconvincing for that very reason and left a lot of people very alienated and cold. Okay, so uh, one of the things I'm feeling is that you're exaggerating the problem with scientists. Maybe I hang out with them more. Um, but, but, you know, it's not just the, it's not just the Hawkings and the Brian Cox. There are, there are tens of thousands, there are 3,000 on our database of scientists who I would spend my evenings with much more than people in my past worlds in politics and campaigning NGOs. They're articulate, they're passionate, they're compelling, and they're always in the media now. So I just, I find your um, interpretation that they're these old kind of technical fogies who don't, meet people where they're at. I mean, the scientists, are, you know, these Ma Miles Allen or Chris Rapley who used to head the Science Museum on Climate Change or Susan Jebb on diet or, you know, Adam Finn on vaccination. And, and, and going with that, we, okay, America's America. Um, in the UK, you've got, we, we, we do these uh, things with Nick Pidgeon every few years, but public attitude to climate change in the UK is amazing. You, the politicians would pay millions to get that kind of acceptance rate. At 70, 80% of the British public accept the science of climate change. Vaccination levels have gone back up to pre-Wakefield era. GM cops, when we came, was all Frankenstein foods, and now it's mostly written about and talked about 
um, not as a scare story. So, I mean, the truth will out, and there are plenty of... And, and just to have a plug for good science press officers, science press officers are doing exactly what you suggest. Not all of them, I agree. But, but I don't know, it just sounds a little bit old-fashioned, actually, your view of scientists being kind of 20 years behind the curve. Well, uh, I think that... We the have Machiavellian... So the issue is... The issue is I, I don't think anyone on this panel... Yeah. donation. How do you think that we won the British public yeah. over to support playing with God to that extent? So a lot of bloody good scientists and good communicators. I think everybody on the panel would re I think <coughs> all recognise that, and that might be cutting through to two-thirds of the population. So the issue is not, are you doing good work? Are you persuading a lot of people? The issue is, are you, is how do you get that other 30% who are, who are more sceptical, I, I would suggest. And in America, it's a lot more than 30. So yes, I, sure. And I, 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 I do <coughs> agree with you. I think the issues are, are, are much, more, much more important there than they are here. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think America's America <coughs> is, is kind of the problem in a way, um, uh, at the risk of, of, of sounding more smug than usual. Um, the, the, uh, <laughs> the, 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 uh, the, the spread of pseudoscience in America is, is, is amazing. And it does matter. I mean, the... the, the monarchical power of the presidency is such that there will be real-world implications to the, the, the Trump presidency's position on climate change, which, which cannot be denied. Um, but no, I mean, I, I, as I said, I mean, I think that there are, there are lots of really great things already happening in the scientific community. But I do think that this, this whole phenomenon of post-truth has, has its applications in that world too, and we can't afford to be complacent about it. And it is, I mean, you know... James's use of the word weaponize is, is, is the key one, which is that it is easier than it has ever been before to spread nonsense in a credible way uh, about things that really matter. And that should frighten all scientists everywhere. However, however, it's also easier than ever before to spread to truth. Spread truth. truth. Precisely. And so that's, one of the things, the I think the thing that probably divides us most is whether <coughs> ultimately you believe that the truth does prevail, or how much damage can be done in the interim period while the truth is not prevailing and while the, 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 the stories are spread. Yeah, the exactly. transition period <laughs> in which the truth is not prevailing. But I think, you know, I, on the whole, take a fairly optimistic view. I might just be lately optimistic that <coughs> people are more interested in the truth about vaccines and climate change than, than nonsense. And and baldness cures, they'll go looking for baldness cures, you know, and they'll, they'll, they'll desperately cling to the before and after photos that are shown to them from the, the laser comb or whatever it is. And they're, they're, they're kind of, ultimately, they would prefer to believe in the truth. They'd prefer to be told the truth. And that ultimately, as evidence, as evidence accumulates, they will gravitate to the truth. That would be my view, but I know you're more worried about the... About I, I'm the I've I, I, um, I tend just to have the slight concern that in the long run we're all dead. Um, and no the, short, the short term can be quite long. Can be quite long. Um, and so I know just sort of looking, you know, I am a total data nerd, so I tend to always try and sort of look, look at these in this frame. And I know if you look at false stories, whether it's on health, whether it's on science, whether it's on whatever, and the best written, splashiest sort of debunk of it, you will usually find that the former wins by a magnitude of 10, um, often more, 50 times as much, 80 times as much. Um, the splashy, fun, misinformation story is just usually a lot more shareable. 
And also, in all honesty, if you're the kind of person who goes to the very good, you know, NHS has a thing that they put out very often, corrections to health stories. They're great pieces. I, you know, I use them when I'm writing. They never, you know, they never get the catch. And the kind of people who read those aren't the ones who read the other stuff. Now, obviously, I know there are some superb science communicators. And as I said, I'm a nerd. I love hanging out with scientists. So, um, but we do have to look at things like health coverage. And it doesn't take long talking with anyone, even people quite savvy on other stuff. No one has a clue what to believe on it because every day there is a new bit of misinformation, a new bit of overhype reporting and over sort of dumb stuff. And we cannot really paint a brilliant story on health. And I'm not going to put this down to the fact that the British public think it's okay to eat a ton of food. And if you have wine and butter, that will be fine for you and help you. And you don't really need to exercise or you do. It's not just that, but, you know, sort of life expectancy and healthy life stuff isn't looking all that rosy. Um, we also have the fact that belief and trust in institutions is joined up. And if we see it slide in areas outside of science, we are likely to see it slide in science too. And so, yes, there are things that are getting better, but I think there are also real, real challenges. Um, okay, right. I'm my last question from me, and then I'm going to come up to the audience. So uh, start waving your hands in a minute. So journalism, you're all journalists. Um, I was struck by Evans, uh, the section in Evans' book on this, where he made... It was kind of a no-brainer for you. It was a very short section, actually, that the, the role for journalism in this is to do its job well, uh, to stand firm, no more, no less. Um, and I think, I mean, actually, in, in the early days of Trump, I was asked to speak at, but before the march, to speak at a science press officers' event. Um, and it was just when the stories were coming out about a gagging order on EPA and that every single member had said, you can't speak, you can't press release, you can't tweet. Um, and actually, it was BuzzFeed who broke the story, and it was also BuzzFeed that the next day broke the fact that the administration had come out and said, that didn't come from us, it's countermanded. The gagging order is countermanded. And for three weeks, I read articles by very good science journalists talking, reflecting on the gagging order on EPA, except that it was countermanded. Um, and I couldn't find any of these great science writers who could tell me the truth. Was it, did it, was it self-censorship? Where did the email come from? Who was it countermanded? Was it ever from the administration? I just didn't think it was very good reporting because I wanted to find out something, whether I should blame Trump for this, and I couldn't find out. So, so that, that's one thing. I want you specifically to address your maverick thing. And, and, and mavericks might get it right sometimes. So I just well, want to... The difficulty for scientists is that sometimes the mavericks do yeah. get it right. Sometimes, I don't, I, I'm not a scientist <coughs> all the time, but sometimes scientific opinion changes. And, the, 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 you know, the, it's a small renegade group who say we've got it wrong, and then the renegade group becomes the establishment. And that just makes it all much more difficult for you because the truth is... But we're on you now. We're okay. on the journalists. So I want you to address the journalist's role in that. Do you see what I mean? The, well, the responsibility of journalists. When well you've got, if, if some mavericks are right, oh, I see. Okay. must you have a maverick on every issue? No. Or, no. And how do you treat no, the no, mavericks? No, 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 do you no. treat them like they might well be right, so you treat them all the same? No, 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 no. I think, I think you just, uh, look, there, there are different kinds of journalism, so let's not pretend yeah. everybody's the same. If you're the BBC and you're representing fairness to all sides of an argument which is, I think, more or less what the BBC interprets impartiality as, 
fairness to all sides of the argument, does not mean putting equal weight on both sides of an argument, or it, it means making clear to the public this is what the view of the, this person is, and this is where the body of opinion is, and why. And that, you know, that is exactly <coughs> what, what I think the BBC will normally do. Yeah. I think it is an issue on a somewhere like the BBC if mavericks who make good clickbait and who are kind of particularly, <coughs> you know, particularly sexy, um, if they get more attention than they deserve. And I think that is a, a thing that does happen. Um, and then you can just give, even, even, even if you give it attention and effectively debunk it, by giving it attention, you've yeah. created a, a, a problem. And incidentally, I think that was the, the issue with the 350 million in the EU referendum. The BBC much criticised for not debunking it. Well, I think we did debunk it. I, I, I know I quite categorically said it's not 350 million. Um, but by constantly talking about <laughs> whether it's 350 million or not, you've left enough of a sort of a, 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 a perception there. So I think the rules are don't give mavericks more attention than they deserve. When you go give mavericks attention, you give them the appropriate balance. You, you explain what their position is, but you say where the body of expert opinion is. If the public say we don't want to believe the experts, that's a, you know, mm. that is a bigger problem for society. But I don't think journalists can solve that. The, the journalist just has to tell the public where it is. So, Matthew, on, on the broadly the role of journalism, yeah. surely it's a huge one, huge. isn't it? Massive, and it, and and <coughs> you know, it's it's no secret that the business model of, of um, at least print journalism is in all sorts of um, uh, trouble, and one of the byproducts of that, I think, has been a hate to be first rather than right, mm -hmm. uh, which is a really important point. Certainly, in in the course of my I started in ninety one, so you know, in that time period, I've watched first mattering more than right. Uh, that's partly because there are fewer bodies, which is also a problem because there are fewer investigative journalists in print media and so on. And, you know, it is, it is one of those moments where you do think, thank God we do have public service broadcasting. You know, thank God we do have BBC because look at America. Um, but that doesn't answer the whole question because there are, there's a whole ecology of, of journalism has to get it right. And I'm afraid there is no better answer than we just have to get it right. Mm. And I think part of that <coughs> is admitting much more prominently when we get it wrong. Uh, and that's, that's one of the, the kind of Leveson recommendations I think print hasn't learned and needs to in order to regain its trust. But there are lots of work done by psychologists on how you regain trust, and we're not following those things. The other thing, just on Mavericks, I, I think a really interesting point is that the power of celebrity has undoubtedly bled. You know, the, the science has, has its own Kardashians. So... Everyone knows that Wakefield talks bullshit. Everybody knows that, really. But he's a star. So he's, he makes a film called Baxter. If you haven't <laughs> seen it, don't watch it. It's, it, 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 it really, I mean, it is absolutely unbelievable nonsense. Um, but when it was, and it, but it was nearly uh, one of the films promoted Tribeca and then was pulled out at the last minute. When it was brought out in the UK, he was on the cover of several quality newspapers because he's a star, and that's the problem. And, and this, I suppose, um, I'm arguing against myself because earlier I was talking about the necessity of having scientists who are stars, but, but that's, you know, that's that is what editorial judgment <coughs> is about, is distinguishing between 
to, to reduce it to absurdity, Stephen Hawking and Wakefield. But if, if we give too much airspace, too much bandwidth to the Mavericks simply because it is a talking point, and it is. You know, I, I, I remember when Wakefield came back, a lot of hacks were talking about it. Oh, he's back, he's back, he's back. <coughs> um, it, it was, there was a kind of Sinatra's back uh, <laughs> on a very small level. Um, what's, what's he found this time? And of course, it was the usual rubbish. But we have to, we have to exercise a self-denying ordinance, and the problem is that it is good clickbait. And right. that's I'm a dilemma. James, okay, there we go. That time, sorry. So um, I think the temptation often when you feel under attack and, you know, quality journalism feels under attack and we're saying truth is under attack, is to play defensive, is to kind of double down and just go, we will keep doing what we've always done, but harder. And it's not like journalism was this glittering city on the hill <laughs> 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago or 200 years ago. We've had some very, very bad journalism in each era and some very good journalism in a lot of them too. Um, and so I think we have to think about sort of the same principles but in a new age and in a new information age. And that won't <coughs> necessarily always mean framing stories in the same way or writing stories in the same way we always have. I think, you know, good popular journalism that gets read, that gets attention, that shapes a conversation that's rooted in truth is the goal. And sometimes, you know, we will at BuzzFeed communicate a very serious policy point or economics paper or science paper and litter it with kitten gifts because that helps. And sometimes we will spend nine months doing a very serious investigation and run it straight. Um, and it's whichever works for a story, whichever will grab an audience, or whichever will tell a true story. And that's kind of our job, to be able to understand the world enough to do something that's a decent first stab at it. We are only doing the first draft of history, and it's hard to know everything in a day sometimes. Um, and tell it in a way that grabs people in. And that's kind of why we have to talk to everyone and do things that way. But a story needn't look like it does now to be good and to be worth telling, I think. Okay, right, over to the audience. Woman has caught my eye there. You've got to wait for the mic, I think. Can we have the roving mics? Um, can I take three quick questions at a time? Or three quick points, because otherwise I'm not going to get anyone in because we haven't got much time. Okay, so three really quick questions or points, okay? Hello? I wasn't saying you, though. <laughs> in the pink. Can, can the mic go to the pink? <laughs> Hello, I'm Emma Pinchbeck, and I am currently the Exec Director of Renewable UK, which is the biggest renewable energy trade body and formerly was the director of climate change for WWF. So I have some form on the things you're talking about. I'm also not a scientist. And so my <coughs> question is about time and about audience because I'm struck that a lot of you are telling me things that I have known for 10 years working in this field and have spent a lot of time talking to the public about, as have colleagues. <coughs> That's why there's 75% <coughs> public approval for climate change in this country. But when it comes to institutional change and the policies and regulations we all need to keep us safe, it's still a very select audience making those decisions. And they tend to listen to the traditional press. And Evan, I cannot get a platform on your show to tell the interesting stories about climate change. I have to talk about the economics of fracking. 
So what is your role as journalists in the traditional media in changing the frame, or are you also accidentally forcing those of us that want to tell good stories to peddle bullshit? Uh, you can't answer now. I know you want to. Um, I'll come here, and then I'll go up there. Yep. Gentlemen here, can, can we run with the mics because we've got hardly got any time? Run, 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 run. D just start talking. Is that all right? Yeah, start talking, Bob. Shout. Isn't part of the problem here, editors in the media who's, and other journalists, they're simply not challenging politicians when they peddle <laughs> false facts about climate change? And they give the example of Nigel Lawson on the Today programme earlier this month where he made some categorically false statements. He was not challenged, and the BBC justified it on the grounds of impartiality and because he shares the same views as Donald Trump on climate change. If that's the basis, we can look <coughs> forward, presumably, to people on the Today programme promoting white supremacy, pussy-grabbing, and mocking disabled people. As if, you if you create an equivalence between opinion and facts, then we're never going to escape from this. Okay. Uh, guy in the pink shirt there, and then the guy behind, and then I promise I'll take you back. Okay, thank you. Right. So you don't have to answer any of these or all of them. <laughs> but do you want to, James, do you want to I mean, to <laughs> jump on the last one first, I think <laughs> it's very easy to call out the bullshit of the politics you don't agree with and very easy to ignore it of your own side and even to buy into it. You are not going to look for a fact <coughs> check on a story that you agree with. You're going to get really angry about it and share it. Um, and in the UK, there are some very serious fake news problems on the left, um, possibly more so than on the right. Um, you know, in America, fake news rose in the right and came. Um, but, you know, here, sort of one of the most dangerous ones that in the end we decided to write about and tackle was this idea that uh, there'd been a D notice, um, a censorship notice <coughs> around reporting the real death toll of Grenfell. And the public mood was incredibly bad then, and this was getting shared. And people who were in the tower were believing it. And one phone call from the far-left blog that did this would have told them there wasn't. Uh, it was just a total nonsense claim, didn't even make sense. And we put out very quickly that it was nonsense, and that sort of did okay. So I think we have to acknowledge bullshit spreads on all sides. But I think a problem that that touches on is essentially there are some people who no longer feel reached by politics or by mainstream media. And in, in those gulfs, those people who are left behind, that's where sort of hyper-partisan sites or bullshit creeps in. And we have to ask ourselves why those people don't trust us anymore, don't listen to us, and work out how to talk to them and reach them again. And I think there was 
an out-of-touch problem and an elite problem that sort of helped shape a lot of the Brexit debate. And I think if we don't admit that, we're sort of letting everything down. Matthew? Well, I'm, I'm there's a slight conflation of um, scientists and the liberal left. Um, I mean, next time, you know, you want an oncologist, go and see Nigel Farage and see how far it gets you. Um, <coughs> I, I, don't, I don't agree with that analysis at all. And I, although I think that the Remain side in, uh, in the Brexit referendum made many errors, and I say this in the book, and I think that Hillary uh, was uh, not the ideal candidate, to put it mildly, it's painfully the case that uh, Trump and the Brexit campaign told many, many lies. Now, if people choose to uh, <coughs> accept that and vote for it, that's fine. But don't ask me to join in the party. Um, I won't. Uh, and I think it's really important that people who believe in truth and evidence-based research as the basis of policy and government not adopt a kind of cultural cringe in response to it. If I'm getting fed up of hearing people uh, saying, oh, you know, we must appease the, the so-called left behinds, it wasn't the left behinds that voted in Trump at all. So um, I, I'm more combative than some. I, I think it's very important that we acknowledge what happened last year and not, and not suggest that somehow this was an earth-shattering moment in which we all, you know, need, for which we all need to atone. Of course, you learn the lessons, but he's still a liar. Evan. Okay, I'll, I'll take, take the, the pink question. Um, so th th I think all media is about <coughs> finding a balance between things that you might call worthy but dull and titillating. And I mean, I, look, I basically do think the answer to everything we're talking about today is the BBC, and I, and I, I would think that. <laughs> but I, th the BBC is always balancing those two things. So we could have loads and loads of things that the audience are not interested in, but which we think <laughs> and which you think would be very good for the audience to be interested in. Um, and we will do those things, uh, but we also have to sort of sugar them down with other things that are perhaps less worthy. So I think <coughs> your problem about not getting on news nights and not getting to talk about the great things you want to talk about is just the kind of that realistic balance between what we on the supply side might want to put out and a sort of realization that the audience have lots of lots of choices you want to come back no you're not allowed to come back absolutely not carry on evan say again <laughs> no we, can, we can't do it we can't do that no, no but no, i've got loads of hands no, no, just it's finish not, your it's point not, it's not, well my point <laughs> is is that our programs are a coalition a coalition of of interesting and other and things that other that are current and things that are less current. And Evan, just quickly on the calling out politicians. On the calling out politicians. Have you, have you, has Abib done enough on Look, that? I, I didn't hear the Trump thing, uh, the, 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 the Lawson, Lawson. The Lawson thing. So I'm not going to talk about the Lawson thing. I think the BBC has done enough to make clear to the British population that the vast bulk of professional scientific <coughs> is on the view that man-made climate change is beyond dispute. The BBC has not left the British public in any doubt about that. It is also important that the BBC tell the British public that there is a fringe group of people who persist in the view that it's not. That's all we have to do. It would be mad of us to pretend there aren't creationists, to pretend there aren't people who believe in homeopathy, all these things. So these things have to be aired, but absolutely it is the job of organisations like ours to make clear, not necessarily picking every individual fact and making rebutting every individual thing, but making clear over time that this is not what most 
people who know about it think. And I honestly do not think the BBC can be accused of not telling the public about climate change. Right, it's breaking my heart already because there's so many hands and, I'm, and we're not going to get them right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the guy with long hair, the guy with behind him and the woman next to him. Anyway, I'll, t I'll tell you when it's happening. The guy with long hair who's got glasses, yeah, you. Start shouting. of the, the kind of situation we've seen in society. So we referred to at the start about tobacco propaganda and fossil fuel industry propaganda, and we know like BP, Shell, Statoil, Exxon, all spreading misinformation, yet they're tied to museums, funding research, um, they're, you know, f uh, funding journalism in some cases as well. So <coughs> is, it, is there some kind of breakdown between us trying to call out this sort of the lies and the nonsense while we're legitimising it in these other spaces as well? Do we need to be more joined up and more ethically consistent ourselves if we're going to call it out properly? Great, thank you. Gentleman behind. I'm going to call out Evan on this one, and I understand the business about the BBC and different sides, but one of the essences of what we've been talking about today is the issue of truth. If we're talking about post-truth, then there must be something called truth. Now, if you're going to legitimise any scientist, what they will come with is evidence, and hypothesis and a theory. They don't take the view, this is the truth. <coughs> they come with a theory that is plausible. The difficulty is for journalists to get over the fact that when you have this, this is the best shot. This is our best shot of what we can give. That doesn't mean it can't be wrong, Evan. It can be wrong, and we know it can be wrong, but this is our best shot at the time. The important thing is for the journalists and those who purvey the news out there is to say, how do you interpret that in a way the public will understand when what <coughs> they're being peddled are things like adverts, which are 90% bullshit. They actually don't have any facts behind them, but that's the norm. Uh, woman, woman there. Hi. Um, I write for the team who um, produces the Behind the Headlines NHS uh, news, which um, I'm really pleased to meet our reader, uh, James. That's great. LAUGHTER <laughs> <laughs> um, so I get to see um, what's in the newspapers and the original paper. That's my day job. I read the, the science paper and I read what the headlines say and then I write a, a piece sort of trying to connect the two. Um, something that's really obvious to me is that people rely incredibly heavy, heavily on the press release because they don't have time to do what I'm doing and read the, the full paper. One of the reasons for that is that we don't have enough um, resources in traditional paid-for journalism anymore, partly because of the <coughs> rise of the internet and, and Facebook and, and so on. So is the, the, the change in the traditional media part of the problem that people are no longer taking notice of the traditional media, they're not lo no longer buying newspapers, and that's going to make it even harder for, for journalists to do a good job because they're so desperately under-resourced. Lovely, thank you. There was a hand being waved behind. I'm going to squeeze that one in as well. Um, yeah, uh, I think two people already kind of made a point that I was going to make, but I was also going to say, um, why should people necessarily trust science when it has, when it does have a history of standing behind hegemonic systems? Why do they necessarily have to take science for truth when it has um, had a hand in um, colonialism, uh, white supremacy, um, um, 
Okay, I think Essential that might be a whole other debate. I Put that on your list of debates. Thank you. Right. It's ten past. Do we have to finish now? Yes, we do. Okay. Final comments, answers to those questions, and any final things. James, I'm going to start with you. I mean, just incredibly <laughs> quickly, I'm the very last one. <coughs> some drugs came out of some very horrific sort of experiments and things like that that we would never do now. Um, it doesn't mean that they don't work, and so we have to sort of follow <coughs> that. Um, I think the issue, the issue of the NHS thing would be largely, I think you possibly give too much faith to some newsrooms it's not that there isn't the resource for someone to look at it. It's that they don't mind that it's not being read in full. They want the glamorous version of the story. And let's be honest, if a single scientific paper is saying something dramatic, it's probably a wrong. Mm. Um, and so that doesn't work well for those newsrooms. Um, and that's why we sort of rely on other ones knocking it down. But, yeah, sorry, that's Any not final an inspiring comments, last James? Any I will, I will pass on so that others okay. can answer. Oh, Matt, well, final uh, comments. Well, uh, just uh, on <coughs> the NHS uh, thing, uh, one, one thing we haven't mentioned, which I just want to give a quick shout out, is the, the rise of um, fact-checking organisations. Yeah. And uh, it's absolutely wonderful. <coughs> and it's, uh, and it's, it's, it's humming away. I mean, uh, the NHS example is a really good one. BBC's Reality Check 2, other, other full, fact. full fact, terrific. I mean, this, this, and, and you can see it seeping through already in journalistic uh, um, discourse, which is actually, you know, after all, fact-checking is just what journalists are meant to do, but it's, <laughs> but it's, but, but, it, but it is, but it is, but it is keeping us honest, which is never a bad thing. Um, so the gentleman who was described as having long hair, which I suppose is factual, but I wouldn't want you to be defined simply by that, um, uh, you made a very interesting point about responsibility, and I think that, that that's, a, again, a missing element, which is, um, I think citizen responsibility is a hugely important thing in this. And that just as we were asked uh, when the web was first uh, in, in its kind of first iteration to be citizen journalists, we're now all citizen editors. And um, my final kind of closing thought in that vein is that my favorite, my favorite quotation of all time is uh, Benjamin Franklin's line. Uh, after the second drafting, he's approached by uh, a lady in the street who says, well, Dr. Franklin, <coughs> what, what manner of, uh, of government have you bequeathed us? And Franklin looks at her in a very uh, sage and stern fashion and says, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. And the, if you can keep it is kind of the warning to everyone. Uh, <coughs> not that we want a republic, but that if we want to keep the kind of uh, system of information and free flow of, of, of facts and, and democratic discourse that we have, we have to actually de – democracy is not a free ride. So that just asking for institutions, them – the state, the tech giants, uh, the science museum, scientists, and so on, to, to come up with uh, new answers is part of it, but it's not the whole thing. This is, this is either a, a civic challenge or it's nothing. Adam? Um, I don't know the answer to the, the long hair question, actually. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, but uh, let me take the, <coughs> the, the point of the gentleman behind, because I think uncertainty is actually one of the most challenging things, because I think the instinct of the scientists is to try and hide the uncertainty in order to make their case more persuasive sometimes. Maybe, maybe, maybe the scientists themselves are clear about the uncertainties, but I think somehow, maybe, it's, maybe, maybe it is the journalists who then make the uncertainties into certainties, but I think it is the case that um, in retailing science stories, telling people it may not be true, is not a very good way of selling it. And yet, telling people it's not true may be important 
in honesty, so it's intellectually the right thing to do, and it may also be the right thing to do in, 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 in persuading people. Most of the time, when people are not persuaded of things, is when they detect they're being sold an argument. And so they think, this person is trying to sell something to me, and immediately think, well, I don't know if I need to believe what they say. And so the, the, the communication of uncertainty, I think, is a really, really important takeaway from the kind of whole post-truth debate. Be more honest, be more uncertain, uh, and be more kind of straightforward ab about, the, uh, about the story. And don't try to spin it, because the spin will backfire <coughs> and make people feel you're, you're flogging them something rather than an honest inter uh, you know, interpreter of the available evidence. My last word, and I think it's exactly the, it's exactly the point Matthew has made, is that this is not a conversation just for uh, journalists and institutions, because all of the stuff that you are fed is a reflection of what is viable and what people want to read to some big extent. So whether it's clicking on um, you know, garbage about autism or going to watch stupid films about uh, vaccinations, um, it is actually a sort of responsibility of, of all of us to make sure that we that we kind of call that, that we don't give bullshit as much sway as it as it shouldn't get. And so I, I think the sort of don't think that this is just a problem which you can you don't have to worry about. You basically you can inform yourself. You know who is reliable. You know what sources are decent. You know which, which newspapers make stories up about celebrities and which don't. And you know which papers have good science correspondence. And I think it is possible, possible, and I like to think over time it will spread, but I think it's possible to believe that you are the answer to all of this rather than, rather than us. Great. Great way to end. Definitive. Last word. No more questions to be asked. We now understand post-truth and what to do about it. Thank you so much to our panel. Thank you to our audience. Thank you to the Science Museum.